Well, this morning we're going to be in the, the 34th Psalm, and uh, to get into that Psalm, I want to lay out the background of where the writer was at, because I think as we understand that, then this Psalm is going to make a lot of sense, especially in light of grief, because David finds himself in a very dark time, a dark moment. Grief often carries us into dark times, and we go through those seasons and the hardship that comes with it. But David, was this is written right at the end of a very difficult season of his life. Now, if you remember, David had been anointed by by the prophet Samuel to be the next king. The problem was um, there was already a king, and he was not stepping down just because a new king had been anointed. But if you remember the story of David, he ended up at a battlefield where he uh, he and some stones took down a a big guy and uh, named Goliath and took him out. And uh, as his popularity began to grow, he, he ended up living at the at the king's palace and living in that place and playing music for him. But as his popularity grew, uh, King Saul got to hearing uh, the crowds. They would say, "Oh yeah, King Saul he's he's slain he's slain his hundreds, but David has slain his thousands." And the jealousy begins to rise in the king, and things get tough. He got so bad one day that he decided to throw a spear at him and see if he could just pierce him and get rid of him. That's how upset King Saul was. Well, David ended up having to flee from the king because he was trying to kill him. And oddly enough, David didn't go back home to Bethlehem. Instead, he headed west to a town called Gath, which was where the uh, the, the king of the, the Philistines lived, which was, by the way, the guy that they had killed his, uh, David had killed their, their, their champion, Goliath. He went to that town, and when the king found out that he was there, he says, well, i got to get rid of him. This is my chance. And so he brought him before him, and David begins to act like he's crazy. And you're going, what? I don't remember that story. First Samuel chapter 20, uh, if you want to read it later. But he, he feigns madness. He, he kind of drools at the face. And I mean, he really acts like a crazy man. And the king says, get him out of here. Probably thinking he's contagious. And after that, he ends up living for a season in a cave, a cave called Adullam, where about 400 of his supporters rally to his side and they are living in a cave. You ever found yourself living in a cave? Maybe not literally, but figuratively, emotionally, spiritually, you're in a dark spot, a place that's not really the most pleasant place. That's where David is. And David is going to respond to this series of events in his life in an interesting way. And that's what I want to dig into. There's a lot of text here, so bear with me. We're going to be reading a lot and jumping through here quickly, but I want you to catch this. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 34. He said, I will, I will bless the Lord... When everything's going well. That's not what he says, is it? He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will be continually, will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, in the context of hiding in a cave, this is probably the last set of words you would have expected to hear from David. Why? You know, when things get tough, when things are hard, things aren't going well, often what do we do? We start to badmouth. We start to, oh, it's all, woe is me. It's bad. It's terrible. It's awful. I don't know if I can even praise God. I don't know if I can do that or not. I just, any of y'all with me? We get there, don't we? 
And, and, and here he is as a man who's filled, I think, with grief. He has lost friendships with the king. He has been attacked by the king. He's been attacked and, and, and run out of the palace by the king of the Philistines. And things are not going well for him. In fact, he's even felt like he's lost freedom to a sense. He can't just travel anywhere because someone would recognize him. But in that moment, here's what he does. He recognizes that the one who's going to carry him through the darkness, through the hard time, is God himself. And so he turns and praises God. Did you see that? He says, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. He says, I'm going to praise God in the storm. Well, sometimes we don't want to praise God in the storm, do we? We want to complain. We want to gripe. We want to find the issue. We want to get somebody to side with us and, and, and join our side and, and, and just pity party with us. You know what I'm saying? But he says, no, I'm going to praise God. He says, I could have sat down in the cave and thrown myself a pity party. But what good would that do? He could. Is, is that going to change the reality that Saul is going to be replaced and that Saul is not happy about that? Is it going to take back the actions he had done over at the Philistine capital where he feigned madness, when he acted like a crazy man? Can he do anything to change anything in his past? He said, I can't do that. But what I can do is in this moment, I can praise God. I can come before the King of Kings and worship him. But he can make a decision about what he's going to be next. Notice what he says. He uses some really soaring language. Throw that text back up there. He says, his praise will be continually in my mouth. Wow. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Oh, what? Magnify the Lord with me. Now, what he does is he moves from just praising God to saying, hey, all of you who are with me here, let's praise God together. Let's come together and praise the Lord. Let's exalt his name. Let's, let's you know, they're not sitting in a church building. They don't have any special music planned. They didn't even know the song King is Coming yet. And yet they're saying, let's praise God. Let's magnify him together. And he invites them to join him in that. And then flowing out of that, the rest of the psalm basically is a list of things that God can be praised for. And he lays out five of them in a row. That's what I want you to grasp this morning as we work through this. The first one is this. He says, our God is what? He's powerful. He's powerful in the storm. Our God's not weak. Our God's not going to be pushed around by any kind of storm or struggles in life. He's not going to be affected by my neg- negative thinking or my mindset. He's not going to be affected by the way I live, by what I do. He's powerful in the storm. And so he says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord, what? Heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So what David does, he says, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to remember him for his goodness. I'm going to remember him for his powerfulness. I want to remember him for who he is. See, God answered David, though I suspect it probably wasn't the answer David was looking for. God delivered David, though, guess what? They were still in the cave. The deliverance was promised. It's coming. God provided a place of no shame. David had made some pretty foolish choices. He acted like a crazy man instead of trusting God in that moment. David heard, was heard by God, but nothing had happened and nothing had changed yet. And God was going to deliver them. He set his camp of angels around them. And so notice what David was doing. Seems like inactivity. He's in the cave. He's in hiding. He can't go out in public 
Things have not gone well, but I want you to catch this. This was what I would call a holy pause where he stops before God and says, God, you're powerful in the storm. You can do what you will do. You will do what you're going to do in the storm. And so he recounts the goodness of God. He spends time in praise. He's watching for the angels of the Lord to show up. And he's dealing with grief, but he knows this. God, you couldn't, you wouldn't abandon me in this. You're going to stay with me no matter what's going on around me, no matter what the struggles are around me. Even if those that I've created myself and those that I haven't, they're still not going to stop me from praising God and remembering his power. Come on down to verse 8. God also prepares his own. Look at verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You ever heard that phrase before? That one's used in a lot of ways in culture still. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God is going to prepare his own in the face of struggles and trials. David writes now is a, a phrase we still use, but it's more than a platitude. He says, he says, pray, taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is an invitation that says, followers of Lord, of the Lord, y'all look, you know how good he is? Just taste him. They're going, that sounds kind of weird. He's not saying physically taste. He's talking about spiritually, emotionally. Taste that the Lord is still here with us. He's not leaving us. He's not walking away from us. He's not giving up with us. And David shoots out here three quick thoughts in succession. He says, taste, fear, prepare. His call to those gathered in the cave is to what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. I think sometimes we forget, don't we, how good God is? But you start looking at David and go, hey, David, uh, do you not know where you're at? Do you not see the circumstances of where you're at? Do you not see the cave you're in? Do you not see the persecution you're facing? Do you not see the struggles you're in? Oh, he knew all that, but he knew this, that his God was better and that his God was bigger and his God was preparing him for whatever comes next in life. He was called on them to fear the Lord. Do you remember how God has provided for us? He says, do you remember how God has provisioned us? Do you remember how he has given us what we need, when we need it, in the moment, without any hesitation or delay? Our God is there. He has prepared us. And then he says, let's look at what we're going to do next. Let's prepare. Prepare for what's coming. In the midst of the moment, God was preparing him as band for what was coming next. What was coming next? Can I tell you something? They didn't know what was coming next. So it's like our lives sometimes, isn't it? We don't know what's coming next. But God knows what's next, and God's preparing us for what's next, and he's preparing us to face what's next. And when we get there, we're going to look back and go, oh, look what God did in preparing us for the next step. And then the next one, our God then provides the life we need, the blessed life. Look at verse 11. Children, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from seeking, speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now in the midst of the storm and waiting for God to prepare what's next, we're not only reminded God is good, but he says this, God, you want to bless us. You want to provide great things in the moment. David wants his children, those who follow him, to learn to fear God no matter what's going on. I think there's a word there for us in a moment, but I want you to catch this. He asked the question, what man is there who desires life and love 
loves many days that he may see good. The implication is this. Everyone who follows the, the, the anointed one of the king, of, of God, the king, they will find blessing. When we find ourselves in the places that God wants us to be, that's where we're going to find the good stuff. And, and the implication is, is that God wants to work. Those blessings are going to be accessed this way, by our choices. You know the old saying, "There's the proof's in the pudding? I never really understood that. But anyway, I know what it means. It means that our actions are going to reveal what we really believe, what we do, how we respond, how we react, how we move forward. They would have to keep their tongue from evil. They would have to refuse to speak deceit. They would have to turn away from evil deeds, and they would have to seek peace. Let me say here, these actions are difficult in the most promising circumstances. When things get hard, when things are tough, when you got two kings, not one, but two kings chasing after you to kill you, and you find yourself living in a cave, how we respond in those moments speak volumes. I suspect part of the secret of living a godly life in the face of grief is not turning inward and not becoming bitter, but in turning to the Lord and saying, God, what do you want to show me? What do you want to provide for me? What do you want? And to let God's presence wash over you. Then look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who are to do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near. And that's the word we're going to kind of drill on near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Here's the thing that he's telling the people who are listening to his call to worship, and it's this, our God pillars with us. And you're going, what? Let me take you back to the time when the people of God have come out of Egypt, they've crossed over on dry land, and who... Who was with them through all that? Well, Moses was. He was leading them. But no, no, come back. Who was really with them all that time? God was. Do you remember how God manifests himself in that season of life in the name nation of Israel? He was a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke in the daytime. And that's the imagery he evokes here, I believe. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who evil cut off. The The idea is he stays with them. And that's what David is reminding the people, reminding us in this text, is that God pillars with us. He stays with us. He doesn't walk away from us. He doesn't leave us. David eloquently speaks of the eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, the face of the Lord, the hearing of the Lord, deliverance of the Lord. The same God who stood with them in the wilderness is the same God who was standing with them in the cave. He's the same God who stands with us in our hard times and in our grief and in our trials. He doesn't leave us. But they had a call here to do something. They had to not turn their backs on God. They needed to not wander from God. They needed to stay close to God and to let Him bring His deliverance and His healing to their lives and to let them find the transformative intimacy that God has for them. And then David reminds them of one more thing about God and that God is the one who perfects us. Look at verse 19. You ever have a verse in Scripture you kind of go, I wish that wasn't in there? Here's one from me. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. (laughs) 
God, can you say few are the afflictions of the righteous? Those of us who trust the Lord, can you give us few afflictions, not many afflictions, God? But, but David tells us this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David speaks about the perfecting work here of God as we follow his prescription for crossing the dark times. He reminds his people, and you and me by extension, that the righteousness are, the righteous are going to face afflictions. But guess what? Those afflictions don't last forever. What happens? God is going to deliver when? Right now? No. He's going to deliver in his timing. He's going to preserve us physically in the face of danger. Even if we end up losing our life for our faith, he says, I'm going to preserve you in the end, and I'm going to send affliction on the wicked. And those who hate the righteous are going to find condemnation. The big idea is this. God uses trials, struggles, even grief in the life of his followers, his servants, to perfect them, to bring them to the place he wants them to be. And what looks like ugliness to us often looks like beautiful to God because he's using what he's allowed in our lives to carry us through that season to make us the people he wants us to be. Coming out of this season of life, David is going to find himself becoming king eventually, becoming the ruler of a massive nation that was successful. And you think, how could that happen? He was in the cave hiding out. God was using that to get him ready. Three quick thoughts I want you to hear and I'll be done. First of all, you know, we can't change the past. Any of y'all have the power to change the past? If you do, I'd love to hear how you do it because I don't know how to do it. I hadn't figured out how to go back in time and fix the mistakes of life to avoid the pitfalls of life, to avoid the struggles. Have have y'all figured that out yet? We cannot change the past, but we can praise God in the midst of whatever we're in. It would have been just as easy for David to crawl in the, in the cave and just go, I'm done, I give up, I'm finished, I don't want to do any more. Yes, he'd been anointed as the next king of Israel. Yes, he, these two kings wanted to kill him. The current kings of Israel and, and, and the Philistines wanted him dead. And there's something about people wanting you dead that really gives a lack of motivation to live sometimes, doesn't it? It seems like everybody's against you. And let's be clear, David had at least made one bad choice in the way he had acted in crazy and, in, and, and feigned insanity in front of the, the Philistine ruler. He made a fool of himself. In fact, I think he showed that he didn't trust God to take him through that time. But you know what? That's the, full, the choice many of us face at the same time and in this life. We look around and we think, I don't know what I'm going to do. How am I going to get through this? And we say, well, I'll fix it. And we make a step. And it's probably the most boneheaded choice we've made in months. And yet we step down that road anyway. We can't change the past. But we can choose in the moment to turn to God and praise Him. I'm reminded of, you remember Paul and Silas. Some of our Bible study lessons this morning were about Paul and Silas, I believe. <clears throat> and, and you remember they, they were sharing the gospel. I think it was the second missionary journey. They'd gone over into what is today Europe. Uh, a place called Philippi. And you remember how that went. It went real well for a while. And then they found themselves, do you remember, in jail. Uh, Boy, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? You're faithful. You did the right thing. You did what God told you to do. And you find yourself in jail. Yay, God. Where yet? 
How do you respond to that? Some of us would sit there in the corner of the jail and have a pity party, wouldn't we? We'd go, oh my goodness, I was doing the right thing and I ended up in jail. This is awful. This is terrible. This is bad. Oh. Right? You remember what those two guys did in jail that night? <laughs> About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them like they had a choice. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. In a real sense, every one of us face decisions in life all the time. How do we respond to what we're going through? How do we respond to the mistakes we've made in the past? What do we do now? Some of us let it become an anchor and hold us in the past. I don't think that's the right reaction and the right response. We, We find ourselves in a tough spot. We either have to do... You say, well, I did the right thing. Paul and Silas did the right thing, but they ended up in jail. Great. Yay. Way to go, God. Leave me in jail. Or you do something boneheaded like I think David did by not trusting God to carry him out of the presence of the Philistine ruler. And you find yourself going, man, I messed up again. Either way, we don't have to become trapped in the moment. We could choose in that moment to do something greater. Let's praise God. In that moment, let's praise God for what He's done, what He's doing, what He will do, who He is, what He's done in our lives, and the work He's done. Don't let ourselves become hooked in that moment and anchored in that moment. Because when we do that, what we find is our lives spiritually stop and we're not growing anymore, we're not moving forward anymore, and we've allowed the past to hold us back from the presence and the future that God has for us. Maybe we can be more like Paul and Silas when things go tough. We pray, we sing. We worship, and we don't let the past hold us back. The second thing I want you to grasp from this passage is simply this. Waiting for God to move is always best. And you probably, some of you would go, well, duh, we know that. The problem is that statement begins with a word that most of us struggle with. Waiting. When our internet gets slow, do you get frustrated? You know, when you look up at the little icon on your phone and it's got a little exclamation mark next to the wireless thing and you go, oh, did you have to have it immediately right then? Yes, we do. Got to have it now. Some of you are chuckling. It may have happened overnight at some of our houses with the rain, right? We go, what in the world is going on here? Part of why David found himself where he was, centered on the truth that he'd made some bad choices. Don't miss that. And instead of waiting for the Lord to care for him, he had taken things into his own hands. He had really had sought to escape, escape Saul's reach, found himself in the hostile territory. That really wasn't a smart move. He went, <laughs> the irony of this is crazy. He leaves the promised land, the God, people of God, and he goes to the people he had just killed the guy a few months or a year before, and hung out with them for a while. Now, really? What in the world are you thinking, David? And he finds himself under the gun again. They're after him to kill him there. They're going, you're crazy, you're nuts. Get out of here. Don't stay here. And he had to act crazy to get out. His decision put him in the line of fire of a pagan king. And by the way, I think his only course of action was to act like a madman maybe, or maybe trust God in the first place. But he would later write these words. David this was David wrote these pass, this passage today when he was young. He comes back later in life, and this is what he said later, even though it's just a couple of psalms past. They're not necessarily chronological in order. So here is what he said. He said, 
Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. This is the guy that younger in life was impulsive, impetuous, and got himself in trouble because he jumped too fast. He finally figured out, he says, that's not the right way to do. He says, fret not, over your, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in the way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Why do we want to look at those who are out there? Why do I want to compare myself to him or to her or to you or to them? I want to say, God, what, what do you have for me? So I want to be still before the Lord. See, in the midst of trials, struggles, and grief, it's easy to lose focus on the things of God. And let's just be honest, sometimes we lose our focus on God. And we say, I can do this. I can handle this. It causes us, because our world has been rocked, because of whatever grief we're dealing with, to get off track and off, off kilter and into a place where we go, I don't know what to do. And we start making rash decisions, impulsive choices, and detrimental decisions that just take us down roads we shouldn't go. And if King David was not exempt from that, why do we think we would be? Be still before the Lord and wait. And let God show you what's next. The next step, the next road, the next decision. The third principle I want you to grasp from this comes from the centers on the situation that David, I believe, was on the point where he could seriously end up dealing with condemnation. You know what condemnation is? Uh, condemnation is kind of like a heavy guilt. You go, I made a choice and it was wrong and now I'm going to kick myself and beat myself up. Any of y'all good at that? I am. I am really good at that. I think it's my spiritual gift, by the way. It's not one, by the way. We love to beat ourselves. I love to beat myself up. I'm probably the hardest critic of me. But there's a way to overcome that and it comes as we follow God. Condemnation fades as we follow God. Now, I, I, I want you to understand, I didn't use the word disappears on purpose because it's still there, isn't it? We still struggle with it. It still pops up. It still comes after us. It still says something. Hey, you, met, you remember when you messed up years ago? Years ago, how much are we going to hold this stuff, right? How long are we going to hang on to this trash in the background, right? But we do, don't we? Condemnation, though, fades as we follow God. There's something freeing, even liberating, not in saying, God, this is what I'm going to do, or God, or ignoring God and saying, here's what I'm going to do. This is my independent decision. This is my choice. This is what I'm going to do. There's something freeing, liberating even, in saying, God, I'm going to submit myself to you, and I'm going to trust you in this moment and when we do that, I think we can find ourselves doing what David did at the beginning of the psalm where we come and we praise God. And we're not inhibited by our choices, by our decisions, by our mistakes, by the baggage we carry. And we sense that sense of foreboding, that ominous darkness that we sometimes live under, we find it just lifting and beginning to fade into the past, into the background, that it doesn't hang on to us any longer. And we begin to say, God, that's what you have. 
Oh, that's the decision. Oh, that's the direction. Oh, that's what you have for me next. Paul, I think, wrote about this in Romans when he said this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, as a child of God, and and I'm, I'm making an assumption that most of you, if many of you, if not most of you, are followers of Christ, you are not intended, we are not intended to live under condemnation. Then why do we do it? Why do we carry that stuff? When things go wrong, when things get tough, when things go terribly, awfully messed up, when grief rolls in, when trials come along, why do we let that stuff hang on to us? Child of God, you have been set free to follow God. You have been set free to live a life of victory in Him. You have been set free to rejoice in the God of your salvation. I read an article this week about how to, how to make a church grow, and I thought, wow, good luck. I'm not sure I even know what to talk about there. But he, one of the things he pointed out was Have you noticed sometimes we come to church and everybody seems to be angry. Everybody seems to be sad. Everybody seems to be upset. And we can't figure out why people don't want to be a part of that. I've been told smiling doesn't break your face, does it? And if we're really living in the freedom of God and the freedom of His power, we won't live that way any longer. We won't live with this burden, this, this negativity, this nastiness that just envelops our lives. And it starts by having a relationship with God. And it's not just the point of salvation, though that's important. It's the process of walking with Him and talking with Him and letting Him speak to us through His Word and communicate His love to us so that it begins to change us from the inside out. We want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. I would think for most of us, it's not a decision that says, I need to trust Christ as Savior. If it is, I want you to be avail- I want to be available for you that you can stand here and boldly proclaim that you're trusting Christ as your Savior. But for most of us, it's a decision that says, I'm going to quit trying to, trying to do it myself. I'm going to quit trying to run it myself. I'm going to quit trying to be in charge. And I'm not going to live under the condemnation that so easily besets us and covers us up. Because in Christ, I have been set free. Friends, some of us need to change our thinking and let God fill us with his presence anew. And tomorrow we'll probably get up and do the same thing again. And Tuesday we'll have to get and do the same thing again. And Wednesday we'll have to remind ourselves, oh yeah, there's no condemnation in Christ. So that no matter what comes in life, we're living with the freedom of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we pray right now for your hand to be on these few moments. Father, for many of us, it's a response that says, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to do what David did. I'm going to praise the God of my salvation. I'm going to invite others to join me. And I've got a list of why he can be praised and why he's worthy of my praise.
Father, I pray for those who need to make some type of public decision, Lord. But ultimately, what we need to make is a decision that says, I'm going to trust you and follow you. And I'm going to let you fill my heart with your love and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray.